the book of Colossians. Well, church, I'm delighted to be able to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. If you're here on Christmas Eve, we consider the final verses in what's been called the Christ hymn, verses 15 through 20, this great and glorious explanation of who Jesus is. It's here in verse 21 that Paul begins to unfold what Jesus has done for us. And so I'm delighted to be able to share with you Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 21 through verse 23. We're, we're really going to go kind of phrase by phrase this morning. And so I, I, I would like to sh- invite you to open your Bibles. I think you'll be benefited from having a copy of God's Word open as we continually reflect back upon it. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Hear now the Word of God. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for uh, your word this morning uh, that contains truths that are so precious to us. Really, uh, we, we enter into the core of our faith today as we think about what Jesus has done in order to bring about the salvation we enjoy, the reconciliation that we have with you. And so we pray even as we uh, remind ourselves of these uh, precious truths that we hold so dear that it would help us to continue to actively place our hope in the gospel. And that indeed you would use these verses and these words in which I share to enable your people to continue in the faith that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would help us even as we uh, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper that these words would be a great uh, incentive to take the Lord's Supper with joy and humility and and looking forward to the great wedding feast that is to come. And so come, be with us, teach us, we pray by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. It was on April 15th in the year 1912 uh, that uh, many of you know the Titanic raised her stern high above the frigid waters of the North Atlantic and then silently slid to the bottom of the ocean. Of course, all the passengers did not go down with her. Many boarded the lifeboats. All 18 of them were occupied. And yet 1,503 passengers did not find those lifeboats in time. The result was that many found themselves struggling to survive as they cried out from the icy waters of the North Atlantic. History shows us that though most of the lifeboats were nowhere near capacity, of those 1,503 swimmers, only 10 were rescued. In fact, in lifeboat number five, commanded by third officer Pittman, when he heard the cries of the swimmers, he turned the boat and shouted, now men, we'll pull towards the wreck. But the passengers protested saying, why should we lose all our lives in a useless attempt to save others? 
And so third officer Pittman gave in. For the next five hours, lifeboat number five, with 40 people on board, though it had a capacity of 65, heaved gently on the calm Atlantic while they listened to the fading cries of swimmers just 300 yards away. Lifeboat number two, 60% full, commanded by fourth officer Boxhall, asked the ladies on board, shall we go back? They unanimously declared no. Lifeboat number six, the situation was actually reversed. The women begged the commanding officer, Quartermaster Hitchens, to return, but he refused to rescue the swimmers. Of the 18 lifeboats that descended into that Atlantic Ocean from the Titanic, only two of them would go on to pull survivors out of the water. One of those, lifeboat number 14, would do so only after waiting an hour after the Titanic sinking when, quote, the thrashing crowd had thinned out. Ken Hughes, Christian author, uh, writes of this event saying the sinking of the Titanic is a parable of a world gone wrong. Fallen humanity is adrift on the unfriendly sea, alienated, unable to help one another despite some occasional individual attempts. The wrongness of everything points to the fundamental problem of people's estrangement from each other and from creation, all caused by sin. I wonder, what do you think about that summary that Kent Hughes offers us? Are, are we estranged, as he suggests? It seems to me that this story uh, of the Titanic's lifeboats implies in some way we are, and I would imagine this is just one of many different examples in which we can consider that demonstrate the estrangement that humanity uh, endures. Of course, we're not here to study history. We have God's word in front of us. And you notice how Paul begins this paragraph there in verse 21. And you who were once alienated. I, I like the word, by the way, uh, once. Right? Isn't that encouraging? This is how you were once. And if you read on in verse 22, you'll read this equally wonderful word, now. This is what you are now. This is what Paul loves to do this, by the way. He loves to go from where you were to where you are in order to highlight the greatness of our current status in Christ. We've already seen him do this in chapter 1 and verse 13 when he said, you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. We'll see this again in chapter 2 and verse 13 when he said, you were once dead but now have been made alive. And it's here in this passage we're told you were once alienated. And now, according to verse 22, you are reconciled. I, I think reconciled is another glorious word. And, and many of you have experienced the glory of reconciliation. That is when a relationship goes bad, goes south. You know when those relations, when that, when that spoils, that is some of the most intense pain in which you will experience in this life. Someone close to you and that relationship is severed, and therefore what great joy and jubilation occurs when there is reconciliation, when the relationship is restored. Well, you see, Paul is using those terminologies to describe what God has done for us, what's happened with us. And I look forward to considering them with you this morning. I know, I know uh, even in, in just reading this passage, uh, these three verses contain very familiar truths that we Christians hold dear. My, my hope is 
is that the familiarity of what we're going to consider this morning will not dull you to the glories which it contains. As I've already prayed, I think this passage, by the way, will help you take the Lord's Supper well, which we'll do in just a moment. I I intend to simply go verse by verse. The first verse is going to answer the question, who you were. The second verse will answer who you are. And the third will answer what you must do. So first consider, Christian, who you were. The answer, of course, as we've already seen, is that you were alienated. For we read in verse 21, even the the very first words, and you, and you. Now it was on Christmas Eve that we considered in in a brief meditation, verses 19 through 20, of that Christ hymn. And you look in verse 20, and we read of the reconciling work that God has done in Christ. We're surprised, perhaps, when we read, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so Paul there tells us in verse 20 that the, uh, the reconciling work of Jesus through his death is a, rec- is a universal wide reconciliation, a reconciliation of all things, things in heaven even, and things here on earth. Well, now he gets to verse 21, and he says, and you. In other words, when we're talking about this cosmic reconciliation that is brought about by Jesus, that also includes you as well. You too uh, will will receive reconciliation in Christ. But of course, if we're to be reconciled by Christ, that implies that we were at one time estranged from Christ. That we were alienated from Christ. And it's here in verse 21 that describes that alienation and you will discover the alienation between you and God was entirely your fault. No fault is laid at his feet. In fact, if, if, if this passage, I think, will be rather um, confrontational to our modern sentiments of humanity. I think if you ask a common man on the street, are humans basically good or bad? Uh, almost universally, people will say, well, of course, humans are, are good, You know, deep down inside, it's all rainbows and sunshines and unicorns. But, you know, they occasionally do bad things, and those bad things are a result of not something within them, but external circumstances that bring them about. How out of touch the Bible is, therefore, when it says, you were hostile in mind. Of course, we might ask, hostile towards whom? Though it's not explicit, I I think it's obvious that Paul is saying we were hostile towards God. In fact, he'll write in the book of Romans famously in chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so Paul explains our alienation in terms of our hostility, our mental hostility towards God. Now, when we think about hostility, I don't think Paul is just suggesting that we're kind of in-your-face, I-hate-you-God kind of hostility. I I think this hostility is most often displayed in just an indifference towards God. I I like how Charles Spurgeon uh, described or imagined the hostility we have between us and God by explaining it in the terms of our indifference towards him. He, He imagined that someone wrote you a letter, but you'd never bother to read it. The conversation went something like this. When, when did it come? Last Monday. Have you read it? Oh, no, I don't bother to read his letters. You have a good many of them? Oh, yes, hundreds of them. What have you done with them? I haven't done any with them. I don't bother to read them. When you did read one of his letters, what was it about? 
Well, it was about wishing to be at peace with me and desiring to do me good. He spoke of me being in great danger and said he would help me and of my being poor and he offered to make me rich. He talked like that and you never read any more of his letters? You must truly hate that person very much. I think it's this indifference that humanity displays towards our creator that is a manifestation of the hostility we have towards him. And of course, that hostility in our, doesn't simply stay in our mind. That hostility commends evil behavior to us as if it were good. Is that not what Paul says there at the end of verse 21? Doing evil deeds. That the hostile thoughts lead to evil acts. Now, when we say evil acts, uh, don't, don't simply think wicked acts. It certainly can include wicked acts. But sometimes we use evil and wicked as synonyms. And I'm not sure we probably... Should I, I think our, our evil deeds are not simply seen in great wicked acts of abuse or, or murder or something like that, but, but simply often the, the evil deeds in which he's referring to, the evil deeds in which we're most often uh, guilty of, is simply putting ourselves first, put, pla placing ourselves before the needs of all others, certainly the, the desires of God. And certainly this is true in our lives. It's seen very evidently in uh, young children. I have a three-year-old, and she is very good and if, if you will, doing evil deeds. That, that is, she, she excels at putting herself first. She just doesn't know to hide it well like you and I do. And, and in fact, I don't know if you ever uh, stumble across the, the online satirical site Babylon Bee. Uh, it is a favorite of mine. Uh, there was one article which uh, began this way, or the title this way, Woman Finally Accepts the Doctrine of Total Depravity Now That Her Daughter Is Two. Okay, and uh, certainly if you have children, you could kind of understand how it is that we have this instinctual desire to place ourselves first, to, 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 to exalt ourselves. Uh, th this is, of course, according to Scripture, evil to do so. In fact, I think evil is undeniable, whether you're a believer or not. I mean, I, I think everyone agrees, Christian or non-Christian, that there is evil in this world. People do evil things. I wonder how often we ask the question, why? Why? Why is there evil? Why do we do evil? I mean, with all of our advances as a society, why do we still see injustice and abuse and anger and greed and all the rest? Our, our, our world, try as we have, we cannot seem to solve this problem of evil, if you will. We can't even explain, most people can't even explain why it's there. Why is there such thing as evil? Well, praise God, he has given us the scripture to actually tell us why. The Bible tells us. The Bible tells us here in verse 21 that we're hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and therefore we are alienated or were alienated from God, estranged from God, at enmity with God. That's what we were. So my Christian brothers and sisters, just kind of glance around this building. Look at the people sitting on your right and your left. Every single person in this room at one time were estranged from God. Were alienated from the creator. I think that's a stunning truth that we sometimes just glance by. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or maybe you're watching on our live stream this morning. Um, th this is, of course, what I'm explaining what we once were only applies to Christians. If you're not a Christian, 
this is not what you were, this is what you currently are. All non-Christians are currently alienated from God. And I say that not because I have some deep personal insight into your life. I, I simply say that according to the, what the scripture tells me about human nature. And when I say we're alienated from God, I, I don't mean to say, um, like we sometimes say, no one is perfect. That's not what I'm meaning at all. I'm meaning that we are actually estranged from God. We have a deep tendency to reject God and his ways. I know this is denied by most people. It was Henry David Thoreau who was on his deathbed and was asked, have you made peace with God? He famously uh, said, I did not know we are at war. I think most people just don't realize the enmity that exists between them and God. I, I am telling you, based upon the authority of Scripture this morning, that you are, if you are not a Christian, you are at war with God. And by the way, he is at war with you, which is a far uh, worse situation to be in. Your heart is sinful. Your mind is hostile. Your deeds, according to Scripture, are evil. And therefore, you are alienated from God. I, I tell this. Um, no, risk, knowing the risk that this might be greatly offensive to some, might be greatly offensive to you watching. And I, I also know that many pastors today in the West would never say something like this, never say something so deeply offensive, such bad news. And it is, of course, in many ways bad news, bad news in the way that someone telling you have cancer is bad news. That's not news you want, but it is news that you need. And therefore, I think it is good news, at least helpful news. That you need to know that you are first alienated from God in order to then receive the reconciliation he would offer. For my Christian brothers and sisters, I think considering what we once were will help you appreciate God's love that he has given you. I, I think you will, you'll never understand the greatness of God's love until you realize how unworthy you are to receive it. In fact, I think it will do more than that. I think it will actually help you love God in response. What was it that Jesus said of the woman who anointed his feet? He who is forgiven much, what is it, remember? Loves much. The more you know that you have been forgiven of, the greater your love will be for the one who forgave you. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what your resolution, New Year's resolutions are. Anybody resolved to love God more in 2021? If you did, uh, by the way, I would commend that resolution to you. If that's your res I want to love God more, you can, I think, find the power to love God more in understanding how unworthy you are of his love that he has so lavishly poured upon you. Once again, it is Spurgeon who says, you've got to stand before God convicted and condemned with a rope around your neck so that you will weep for joy when God at the right time sends Christ into your life as your savior. What were you? alienated. What are you, point number two, who you are, praise God, is reconciled. There is reconciliation. Once again, note the first word in verse 22, he, he, right? So we've moved from beginning verse 21 with you, and now in verse, the subject's changed here in verse 22, he, right? He has what? He has now reconciled you. So you, you did the wrong, he did the reconciling. You caused the estrangement. He brought the reunion. And I think the more we grasp hold of this truth, the more, uh, the greater our assurance of salvation will be. Some of you perhaps struggle with assurance of salvation. 
I think understanding what he has done in response to who you are or who you were will give you great assurance. And what I mean by that is if you were hostile, if you were evil, if you were alienated, as verse 21 declares, then the reconciliation or the salvation in which you received is, in not, is not in any way due to your own goodness. Right? Does that make sense? I think that's incredibly assuring. Because the Christian is saved not because you deserved it, not because you initiated it, not because you caused it. God didn't wait for some moral improvement in your life. He, took, he, he didn't wait for you to take some steps towards him. He didn't wait for you to offer some honest plea for mercy. He didn't wait for you to, to give him any stirring worship. His reconciling love for you, Christian, is not a response to your goodness, but to his. It is his goodness that has motivated him to step out and to save you. I think this is essential if you're to have assurance of salvation. Because if you think that God's love for you is dependent upon your lovable characteristics, you'll never be secure in it. You, you will be afraid that you will therefore do something to lessen the cause of God's love for you. You will fear that you will do something undeserving of his love. And you will do something undeserving of his love. But if you believe God loves me because he chose to love me, not because of who I am, but because of who he is, you will be assured of that love forever. You will never do anything to lose God's love because you never did anything to merit it in the first place. You have been reconciled. Well, how? How has he done this? Well, just read on in verse 21 where you see the means of that reconciliation he has brought about. He has now, recon he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That is, Jesus' physical death brings us back into fellowship with God. You know elsewhere in scripture that Jesus has delivered himself up for us, he has died for our sins. He was punished in our place. He took our condemnation upon himself. I don't know if you've been blessed by the, the, the collection of Puritan prayers from the book, The Valley of Vision. I was reading recently from one of those prayers, these words. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, enter darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept all tears, that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned that I might have endless song. He endured all pain that I might have unfading health. He bore a thorned crown that I might have a glory diadem. He bowed his head that I might uplift mine. He experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. He closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. He expired that I might forever live. We are reconciled to God on account of what Christ has done for us. Not on account of what he's done in us, 
but on account of what he has done for us on our behalf. By his death, Paul writes, you are now reconciled. I would suggest to you this too is how we measure the love of God for us. It is not simply how unworthy we are of it, but the cost that God uh, uh, spent, if I could use those words, in order to express his love. That is, the greater the sacrifice, the deeper the love, isn't it? If, if, if you need $5 for lunch and I give you $5, that's an expression of love, isn't it? The, uh, but uh, it's not as great of an expression of love if I, I spend uh, an afternoon of sweat and toil moving you from one home to another. That's a deeper expression of love. But if one gives their life for another, well, that is, the, according to Jesus, the greatest expression of love. You see, Jesus didn't simply sacrifice his afternoon. He didn't simply sacrifice his convenience or his time or his wealth or his freedom. No, he did give up all those things, didn't he? He sacrificed his life. Paul says here, again, verse 21, by his death. And what, what a death it was. A, a, a painful death, a bloody death, a shameful death. His death was awful to the greatest degree, and the life that was given was was perfect. I mean, Jesus was not some man who wasted his life and tried to redeem it through some great act of sacrifice. He, he was not some drunkard or abuser or thief or felon who tried to atone for some past sin by giving himself up. It was the best life that was ever lived. Not even close. There's no comparison. It was the best life that was ever lived, and it was given up for us. He's the one who died for us by his death. We have now been reconciled. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, you want to know the extent of the love of God, know it in the value of the price he paid to reconcile you. Reconciled by his death. That's the means of reconciliation. But Paul will also tell us there in verse 22, the goal of reconciliation. Why then has God done this for us? You know this great transformation, which he explains there at the end of verse 22, writing, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Those three glorious terms that describe what Christ is doing in you and how he will present you. He says you're going to be holy. That is, that you are set apart for God. You now belong to God and not to this world. We are his. Secondly, he says we are blameless. That is, all the wrong that we have done are, are forgotten. All the wrongs are forgotten. All the stains we once bore are washed away, blameless. Uh, maybe your translation says, without blemish. I like that phrase. There is no blemish on you. You kind of invert that idea. In other words, he finds you beautiful. God sees no blemish in you. Rather, he sees you as beautiful. I, I, can, you, can you imagine who we were in verse 21, and now we find out in verse 22, God sees us without blemish? I mean, to, to, to truly understand that God sees you as beautiful, I think would give you such joy and confidence that it would almost be impossible to extinguish. I mean, think about how you, how you, some, you know, sometimes you see that sun, sunrise over the ocean or you, you hear that piece of music and your, your heart leaps, right? And your, your delight grows and you feel a little bit breathless. You find it beautiful. That's how God looks at you. That's how God feels about you. He looks at you in Christ and sees you to be beautiful. 
And I'll tell you, there is no other religion that has ever been invented by man that even, even tries to, to come to such a conclusion that God would find us beautiful, maybe acceptable, but not beautiful. It is Christianity alone that dis, to explains such glorious truths. In his grace, he finds us without blemish, holy, blameless. And then lastly, you notice above reproach, or other translations write, free from accusation. I know some of you perhaps are are harassed by accusation. It comes at you again and again and again. There's a whisper in the back of your mind. It says, you know, how can you do such a thing? Or how can God love you if you're like this? And, and, and how will he ever forgive you since you've done this? And this, this accusation comes over and over and over and over again. I want you to hear these words, Christian, if that describes you. In Christ, you are free from accusation. There is no accusation to be brought against you. There's none, none to be made. Why? Because the sin is gone. The guilt is gone. The wrath is gone. The hostility is gone. The coming judgment is gone. His justice, because of what Christ has done for us, his justice demands that there be no accusation against you if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, Paul will declare famously there, Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the justice of God demands for you. No accusation. You, you understand, I think, that, that justice is obligated to come to that conclusion. I think there's a great difference between mercy and justice, both which we have received in God, in Christ. Mercy is unobligated. Right? That's what makes it mercy. If mercy was obligated, it wouldn't be mercy. Justice, to the opposite, is obligated. If it were unobligated, it wouldn't be justice. Justice makes demands. And if you are in Christ, justice demands your forgiveness. Demands that your record be expunged. It demands that you are above reproach. This is what Christ is doing in you. This is who you are. This is the goal of this uh, reconciliation that you be transformed. And all of this, of course, so that we can come to God. Notice he does not say there in verse uh, 22 that, it, that he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order that you might be holy, blameless, and above reproach. But read it very carefully. He says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So our final end, our ultimate goal is to be reconciled to God, to our maker. And, and this, is, this is why I think reconciliation is such a beautiful term. Reconciliation means you get God. It, sometimes we talk uh, of what Christ has done in terms of salvation. Of course, scripture does as well. Well, salvation is what God does for you. Right? God saves you. He saves you from sin. He saves you from wrath. It's God acting on your behalf. Reconciliation is not simply what God does for you. Reconciliation is God giving himself to you. Reconciliation is inherently a relational term. It's not a, a term of, uh, of a judicial term or a commercial term. It's a relational term. Two people being brought back together. And so being reconciled, God gives us himself. Right? So we might be presented before him, come to him, so that we can receive his, not simply his gifts, but him himself. 
It is uh, Jonathan Edwards who in 1731 at age 28 would write these words, God himself is the highest good and the sum of all that is good. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food and their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, their everlasting honor and glory. The glorious excellencies and beauties of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. It is this God to whom Christ intends to present us. And I don't know what that's going to be like. He says, I'm going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before my Father. I don't, I don't know if Jesus is going to come to the Father and say, well, Father, uh, I'd like to introduce you to Abraham. And, and, uh, and, and over here is Gideon, and, and this, is, this is David, and uh, this is uh, uh, Mary of Magdala, and, and th- this guy over here, he was crucified next to me. And might he say, and this is Stephen, and this is Ben, and this is Ryan, and, and this is Carrie, and this is Angela, and Tom. This is Jan, Quentin, being presented before a holy God. I, one day I will stand before the creator of all things. One day I will stand before my holy father, I who once was unreconciled, I who once was hostile, I who once was evil, and I will stand before him holy and blameless and free from any accusation. You say, how can that be? How is that possible? My brothers and sisters, he has reconciled you by his death. Which leads us to this last verse, doesn't it? What then must we do in order to Receive this reconciliation. You see, if we we talk about what we were in the context of alienation and what you are in the context of reconciliation, what must we do? Well, continuation. For we read in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. You must believe and you must continue to believe. Notice he didn't say if you do good things, if you're baptized, if you... If you, you know, receive the sacraments, it's no, there's no list of things to do if you believe and you continue to believe. And I do like the fact that he doesn't simply say if you believe, but he says if you continue in the faith, continue to believe. And I, I don't think, don't get all worked up here. We don't need to fret here. What does he mean by continue in the faith? Well, he simply means, I think what Paul is, is, is confronting is, is a very prominent uh, reality in Western Christianity today, and, and perhaps in his day as well, that to come into a relationship with God, all you need to do is pray a prayer, right? Like it's some magic incantation. I prayed that prayer, I was baptized, and now I'm good. And for the rest of my, I just go on with my life, right? I, I did the thing I was supposed to do, and now I could get on with the rest of it. No, Paul says, no, the relationship that we have with God is an ongoing relationship, much like the relationship with your spouse. I mean, you, you, don't, you, you, you say, are you devoted to your spouse? The answer to that question is, oh, of course I am, because 23 years ago I went to church and I said some things, and of course I'm devoted to her. No, the answer, are you devoted to your spouse, is yes, of course I love her. Right now I'm continuing to love her. The, the same is true for our relationship with God. We are in a continual relationship with God. I, in fact, I asked my, uh, a number of my children last night, I, I said, are you a Christian? And they answered, you know, one by one, yes. And I then asked the follow-up question, how do you know you're a Christian? 
And they gave the right answer. Because I believe. Not because I believed. Not because I did this thing or that thing a number of years ago. But because right now, sitting on your couch uh, on January 2nd, I believe in Christ. And we have to continue in that faith, certainly. That perseverance of faith is what proves its genuine character. True faith is a persevering faith. In fact, Paul goes on to tell us how we can persevere in this faith. For he says there in verse 23, if you did continue in the faith, and then notice the description, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. In other words, we keep hoping in the gospel in order to keep believing. That's why I'm preaching you the gospel today. I mean, every, if you've been around for a little while, everything I've said today, you already know. I mean, this is all kind of rehearsal. You say, why, why are you just telling us what we already know? I'm telling you what you already know. I'm telling you the gospel today so that you can continue to hope in the gospel in order that you might continue in the faith. Right? This, is, this is why, in fact, every Sunday I preach, every opportunity I preach, whether it's Sunday or any other day, I don't ever preach without preaching the gospel. It's why every funeral I officiate, every wedding I, I officiate, I preach the gospel because it is our hope in the gospel that keeps us believing. This is why Paul celebrates his ministry. As you read on in verse 23, he says, which has been proclaimed, that's the gospel, in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says, my ministry is a gospel-centered ministry. I'm about proclaiming the gospel. And I would hasten to add, this is not simply Paul's ministry. It's not simply my ministry, but it is your ministry one to another. If we are to continue in the faith, we're going to need one another. This is why we emphasize so much here in Hamilton Baptist Church, church membership. Getting plugged in, committing to one another. Because Christianity is never intended by God to be uh, lived in isolation. We are not to live alone, separated from one another. We are to live in a community of people which God calls the local church. And we're to do so in order to encourage one another, and we're to do so in order to admonish one another and to help one another in order to keep one another in the faith. You, you get isolated from people, and, and the doubts and the questions, they become much more powerful. The temptations grow much stronger, and it's far easier to get picked off, if you will, when we're separated from the group of people. This is why we join together. This is, I, I know you've heard me say this before. It's one of my great fears with this live stream. Because I'm afraid that some people, if we, you know, as we, we do this live stream, we do it for a particular reason because of this days of COVID. But if, 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 if we have a live stream and you wake up and you decide, oh, I wonder, should I go to church and gather with God's people or should I watch the live stream? I would simply just like to suggest to you, or more than suggest to you, that you don't have that option, Christian. You are called to gather with God's people. That is what God's people have always been doing. Now, I know many of you have health issues, which is in these days of COVID, you need to utilize the live stream. But if you are using it simply because you don't want to go through the hassle of showing up on a Sunday, please understand that you are placing yourself in a dangerous situation. And I think uh, you're causing your brothers and sisters to neglect your ministry. I would tell you, all of you are here with your face mask on and uncomfortable and hoping this sermon ends soon so we can get these things off our face. I, I want you to understand something. Do not misjudge, do not minimize the ministry of showing up. 
it is a ministry to one another that you sit in those pews and yet you sing your praises to God and you attune your heart to God's word. It ministers to others. It is an encouragement to others to continue in the faith, to continue in hoping in the gospel. Of course, you need to do more than show up. You need to get involved. You need to get plugged in. You need to be known. This is why we value our community group so much so that people can know us. I will tell you, it seems to me almost universal that whenever someone walks away from Christ, they first walk away from Christ's people. It almost always happens in that order. If they're going to abandon Jesus, they will first abandon the church. And so we have a great ministry to help us continue to be Christ to one another as we're called to be. We've seen in chapter 1 and verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. When he was here, he showed us what God is like. How does he do that now? He does that through his body, namely you and I, the church, which we've already seen in the book of Colossians. So if we are to show one another who Christ is, what is it we're showing one another? Well, we're showing one another that Christ is a reconciler. And so let me just conclude with this last point of application. You have been reconciled, Christian, by God through Christ. Are you, therefore, a reconciler to others? Do you absorb the wrongs? Are you a peacemaker in your home? Are you quick to seek forgiveness from those you've wronged? Is there anyone in this faith community called Hamilton Baptist Church that you are holding their sin against them, that you're holding on to their sin. If you are a Christian, you must not. Because your only hope, your only hope of salvation depends on God not doing that to you. That he would absorb your wrongs. He would not hold on to your sin. The church is to model what God is like. God is, as we've seen here, a reconciling God. And you too, therefore, need to be a reconciler. That's very difficult, as you know. Where shall you find power to do so? You find power to be a reconciler by rejoicing in the reconciliation in which you have received in Christ. I hope the Lord's Supper will help you. I hope as we take the Lord's Supper now that you will find that it is an empowering reality to to form you more into the image of who Jesus is. In fact, when I think about the Lord's Supper, I think that this is a meal that humbles us, doesn't it? As we've already seen, the bread and the cup are, are display a communication to us that our sin is so bad that Christ had to die, shed his blood, and give up his body in order that we might be reconciled. It, it, is, it is a humbling place, and yet it is a delightful place because the bread and the cup remind us that we have been reconciled that the debt has been paid, and that we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God, that we are, in fact, at such peace with God, it's as if he invited you to pull up a seat to his table that he might share a meal with you. That's the Lord's Supper. It is a place of humility and yet a place of great joy. And may you find power through it that you might be more and more like Jesus. Let us pray together. Father, we're thankful for the reconciliation in which we have received in Jesus. And we are thankful for this meal that reminds us of that reconciliation. We pray that we, knowing what Christ has done for us, how he has brought us from where we are to where we are now to where we will be one day, we would find great power 
uh, to be freed from holding on to grudges and, and, and all the rest and delight, be free to be a reconciler. Help us to be a people quick to offer forgiveness for the great forgiveness in which we have received. We, of course, pray for those here or those who are watching on our live stream who are yet to be reconciled to you through Christ. We pray that even now you would give them faith to believe, that they would call out, as the publican did long ago, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we know for all who cry out, you are quick to offer mercy. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.